A quick disclaimer, this episode contains some language and topics that may not be suitable for young kids. Good evening. We all knew it couldn't go on forever, but no one thought it would come to this. A brutal massacre of Chinese students and other protesters by the Chinese army. The brutal assault by an estimated 30,000 Chinese troops ended at Tiananmen Square in the heart of Beijing, where thousands of students had been staging a sit-in for democracy for the past three weeks. This is how the international news media covered the story from China in June 1989. Tanks and troops had rolled into Tiananmen Square. The Chinese military opened fire on crowds of protesters and bystanders. After hours of shooting and facing a line of troops, the crowd is still here. They're shouting, stop the killing and down with the government. Months of student-led demonstrations were put to an end on June 4, 1989. Surviving protesters left Tiananmen Square in defeat. Human rights organizations have called this incident as a massacre. No one knows exactly how many people were killed. Chinese official records say around 300. Many other estimates say the death toll is in the thousands. This is Borrowed. I'm Jasmine Se. In the first episode of this three-part podcast series, I investigated how Hong Kong's national security law has affected those who are publishing books in the city. But what about those who are writing books? Has the national security law affected them as well? This is episode two, The Authors. Before I talk about Hong Kong authors, let me give you some context first. Bear with me here. The Tiananmen Square incident in 1989 was a watershed moment. For international observers, many of us still remembered the iconic image of the man in a white shirt and dark trousers standing in front of a column of tanks. But inside mainland China, the government has gone on to sweep the tragedy under the rug. History books in mainland China leave no mention of what had happened, online discussions are censored, and internet references of the crackdown are cleansed. This national act of forgettance has been starkly contrasted with what occurs in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, which will come under China's control in 1997, more than 100,000 demonstrators took to the streets to express outrage over the bloody crackdown in Beijing. Protesters are pouring into the central by their thousands. They pack the whole of each other of the Since then, every year on June 4th, thousands of people would march through the streets of Hong Kong in memory of what had happened in 1989. Eight years later, in 1997, just weeks before the handover, the rallies were charged with an extra emotion, fear. I hope these can continue because as you can see, they are entirely peaceful and orderly. But nobody knows whether we will be allowed to continue or not. That is why I believe more people have turned up on this occasion than in previous years. You know, we want to remember it because we don't want in the future in China these same things is going to happen again. So if we don't want the same things that's going to happen in the future, the best way is to remember it. Sure enough, ever since 1997, Hong Kong became the only place on Chinese soil where mass commemorations of the 1989 incident have taken place in addition to these rallies. 
an eight-meter-high statue was erected in Victoria Park. It uh, relates to the suffering uh, of, of, of all these people who've been killed on, this, on the Tiananmen Square. This is Jens Gausche, the sculptor of the statue. But not only on the Tiananmen Square. This is, uh, this is a pillar of shame for all that kind of crime, crime all, all over the world. The pillar of shame soon found a home in the University of Hong Kong. But 24 years later, in December of 2021, in the dead of night, workers wearing yellow hard hats were seen pushing a large cargo trolley with a long bubble-wrapped object placed on top. They had demolished the pillar of shame and were removing it from the university campus. By the time the sun had risen, all remnants of the statue had disappeared. And that's not all. The university's campus has a bridge where a slogan is painted on the pavement. The slogan paid tribute to the student protesters killed in Tiananmen Square. A month after the pillar of shame was removed, workers gathered around that slogan, saying that they were doing routine maintenance of the bridge. They covered up the slogan with large metal panels. Elsewhere in Hong Kong, a Tiananmen Square museum was raided and forced into closure. Members of the organization which led the annual June 4th vigil have been arrested, and the annual vigil itself has been banned for the past two years. Authorities cited COVID-19 restrictions, but activists accused local officials of bowing to pressure from Beijing. As Hong Kong's public memorials of the 1989 incident are being purged, I started to wonder, what does it mean to remember a city's history when the government is erasing physical remnants of such history? Hong Kong was always, um, uh, how, how to describe it? I mean, it's a, a very exciting and dynamic place, whether coming from Melbourne or, or coming from Beijing. This is Anthony Dapperin. He's an Australian writer and lawyer based in Hong Kong, and he's been living in the city since 1999. I had spoken with Anthony through video call in February of 2022 during Hong Kong's fifth COVID wave. Hong Kong was, you know, this big bustling metropolis full of neon lights and, and busy streets and, and hot tropical humid air at midnight and um, just a really exciting and, and dynamic place to be. And I think it was those initial visits that you know, brought the, you know, excited me about the city and made me want to come back here and, and, and work when I graduated from university. Some of these aspects of Hong Kong still exist today. The neon lights still light up every night. The hot and humid air can still be felt throughout the majority of the year. But a lot more has changed. Ever since the pandemic disrupted the city in early 2020, Hong Kong is no longer the big bustling metropolis it once was. But even before the pandemic, Hong Kong has always been a place where nothing stays forever. Businesses and restaurants close, and before you know it, a new one has replaced it. Even seemingly permanent fixtures of the city have turned out to be temporal, as entire streets and entire villages have been redeveloped for the sake of urbanization. This has left Hong Kongers continually grieving for the loss of space. But as Anthony had pointed out in an essay he wrote back in 2017, in Hong Kong, changes in space and time are conflated. Distance in time changes the place. While the handover may be gone, Anthony continued in his essay, the anxiety has not. The threat of 1997 has been replaced with the threat of 2047, being experienced almost as a second handover, or perhaps the real handover. With political developments of recent years, it seems a new impulse to nostalgia is triggered by this anticipatory trauma. Perhaps we even need it. 
Perhaps nostalgia is not a sickness but a cure to the aggressive anti-sentimentality that Hong Kong can at times seem to embody. Yeah, it's interesting that I do think back to that that essay I was writing about nostalgia and and solastalgia,、um, which is a, a term that、uh, Lynn Albrecht, an Australian philosopher, sort of coined initially to describe. The dislocation people feel at environmental destruction and and sort of the destruction of natural environment and, and the disorientation and the sense of feeling bereft that that leads people to feel when the natural environment that they are accustomed to or live in is is, is damaged or destroyed. A suggested remedy for this solastalgia is community involvement, and in Hong Kong, this community involvement often materializes in the form of protests. At the end of August 2014, Beijing proposed to reform Hong Kong's electoral system. The decision of the MPCSC has laid down a clear framework on the specific methods for selecting the CE by universal suffrage from 2017 onward. That's C. Y. Leung, the chief executive of Hong Kong back in 2014. We will all be able to vote for the CE in 2017 through one person, one vote at the polling stations. While this reform promised the principle of one person, one vote, there was a caveat: candidates running for chief executive had to be nominated by a committee, and this committee would be composed mostly of Beijing loyalists. Those in Hong Kong saw this reform as a betrayal to the universal suffrage they were promised, so they protested. Tens of thousands of people, many of whom were students, camped in the streets, demanding the right to pick their own leader. They occupied territories in Admiralty, Causeway Bay, and several others. The Umbrella Movement got its moniker after protesters began using umbrellas as defense, protecting themselves from the tear gas used by police. But as the protests went on, police tactics grew more aggressive. And by December, some of the protest leaders had urged the people to leave. The free initiators of OCLP and some of our supporters have decided to surrender to police tomorrow, the third of December. This is Benny Tai, one of the initiators of the Umbrella Movement. To surrender is not to fail; it's a silent denunciation of a heartless government. Protesters soon packed away their tents and sleeping bags, and the streets were quickly replaced with the usual buses, taxis, and pedestrians again. Three months of protests had come to an end without achieving full universal suffrage. In the next chief executive election, Beijing's preferred candidate Carrie Lam was elected. There were a few years where people were feeling fairly dispirited about about what had happened in the wake of the Umbrella Movement, and it hadn't achieved the aims it wanted to achieve, and. And there was already a sort of a, a bit of a hearkening back to a nostalgic era in Hong Kong, and a bit of this sense of solastalgia. But all around the city, posters and banners had one phrase printed on them: "We'll be back." Five years later, protesters were back on the streets, and this time, universal suffrage was only one of their demands. They also called for the withdrawal of an extradition bill. To retract the characterization of protests as riots, to release and exonerate arrested protesters, and to establish an independent commission to look into police misconduct.
The 2019 protests would become the largest set of demonstrations in Hong Kong's history, much greater than that of the Umbrella Movement. As the protests went on and escalated further, Anthony found himself being approached by various media organizations who were trying to find out what was going on in Hong Kong. Because I'd already sort of, you know, having been the person who wrote a book on the history of protests in Hong Kong when 2019 protests happened, a lot of you know, folks from the media and so on were, were coming to me for my views. But this placed Anthony in a slightly awkward position. I didn't at all want to be seen to be somehow sort of benefiting from this. I mean, certainly I, I was very happy and keen to explain my understanding and interpretation of events based on my observations and my knowledge of, of the history and to share that with the rest of the world. But um, I didn't want to be seen to be somehow benefiting from the misfortune of Hong Kong going through that difficult time and, and the people who were, were struggling through that difficult time. And also I didn't want to be seen to be sort of speaking for Hong Kongers. After all, Anthony is a foreigner and he can leave Hong Kong at any time. And, and so it's not really my fight, but and so my role, I think, is to sort of observe and, and interpret and, and provide commentary. But I want to be very careful not to be sort of speaking over the top of or trying to be seen to be speaking on behalf of, of the Hong Kongers who really deserve their own voice. So in a way, I sort of saw my role as helping to perhaps amplify the Hong Kong voices and help amplify and, and explain the Hong Kong voices and give context to what they were saying to people from the rest of the world who might not be aware. Now, how does all of this connect to the literary situation in Hong Kong today? Hong Kong has been a place of vocal criticism and civil unrest, protesting for democracy and remembering mainland China's forgotten history. And there has been no shortage of writers in Hong Kong who have written about this, who have been recording history with their words and their books. But is there something that these writers are concerned about now that they weren't just two years ago? Anthony wrote a book on the 2019 protests called City on Fire. This book was published in March of 2020, just three months before the national security law came into effect. I, I have to admit that I was you know, in the, the first edition of City on Fire. I went as far as to say that I didn't think that they would introduce a national security law. Um, and I sort of made the point that, firstly, that it would be very provocative, given everything that had happened in 2019, but also that they didn't really need it, given all the other repressive tools that they have at, at their disposal. But um, they went ahead and did it anyway. It you know, surprised me, and I think surprised everyone else as well, frankly, the extent to which it was, um, you know, so how, how broad the the law was. Uh, and I think it probably helped that COVID meant that there was really no opportunity for people to express any kind of dissent or resistance. And so, yeah, it was a surprise, certainly. And I think for, really for all of observers and, and participants and you know, people in Hong Kong, the the depth and the breadth and the speed of sort of the, the crackdown from you know, across 2019, across 2020 and 2021 has really, I think, exceeded anything that, that anyone expected. Antony's not the only one who was surprised by the speed in which the national security law was implemented. The change of the social and political situation in Hong Kong has been rather dramatic in the past couple of years. That's an award-winning writer in Hong Kong. But a voice you're hearing is actually my mom's. The writer wanted to remain anonymous. I think most people no longer feel safe to express themselves freely in Hong Kong. So I had my mom read out what the anonymous writer had written through email in response to my interview questions. We knew for quite some time that large publishers and bookstores in Hong Kong were self-censoring and things were changing slowly. 
but I couldn't foresee that freedom of expression would be destroyed so dramatically and so quickly. Amnesty International published an article listing ten reasons why everyone should be worried about this new law. First on that list, endangering national security can mean virtually anything. I think any work can be considered as violating the national security law, as the law is written in such a way that is ambiguous and vague. Without any clear red lines, the national security law has a powerful chilling effect. I can't really tell what is considered self-censorship anymore. This is Karen Chung. She's a former journalist and has written opinion essays and cultural criticisms about Hong Kong for international media outlets. And she recently came out with a book, a memoir about growing up in Hong Kong. I had spoken with Karen through video call in March of 2022. I think when an assault was first enacted, I was very sort of naive about the whole thing. I was still like, okay. You shouldn't impose that line on yourself until someone has imposed that line on you and actively tell you that this is not allowed. I say this is naive because I think I just really did not understand how a climate of fear works. I understood it in theory. I didn't understand it in principle. Which is to say, they don't need to explicitly tell you that this. Is not allowed. You will end up drawing that line for yourself, and the whole point of it is to keep guessing the line. As Karen was writing her book, she was also keeping an eye on the latest news related to the national security law. You know, the whole time I was writing it, you know, Guangxi was being debated in court. Karen's referring to the 2019 protest slogan, "Liberate Hong Kong: The Revolution of Our Times." Just two days after the national security law was passed, the government forbade the use of the slogan. They found the slogan to be secessionist and connoting Hong Kong independence, and therefore endangering national security. And so I had to really sit down and go through the entire text and be like, okay, am I mentioning it in a way that is really purely documentation? I need to make sure that I don't, you know, there's no like suggestive. Phrasing around that to accidentally get me into trouble—that is really, that is really 100%, you know, self-censorship. And I knew I was doing that, but I also don't know what the alternative is anymore. You know, like I think in the past, I was just like, oh, like everyone should not obey in advance or whatever. And these days, I'm just like, how do I not go to prison? That's yeah. I don't want to be careless, is the thing, but nobody can really say how careful you can be. Some writers, including Karen, try to word things more carefully to avoid crossing any red lines. Others avoid writing entirely. It's it's constrained what I say in public, and it's constrained what I publish about. I mean, I've, I've basically, in the last year, published almost nothing on Hong Kong. When you have newspaper editors and or media outlet editors and reporters being arrested on on national security law charges based on the content of of what they write and what they publish, I think that's enough to to give everyone pause and and to make them think very carefully about what they're writing and and their public statements and their social media. The Chinese government is no stranger to silencing writers who they perceive are a threat to the prevailing political order. Liu Xiaobo, a writer and literary critic, 
was arrested multiple times for his political activism since the 1989 protests. In 2008, he and a group of intellectuals drafted a manifesto called Charter 08. The manifesto called for a series of democratic reforms in China and an end to the country's one-party rule. Because of this manifesto, Liu was sentenced to jail for 11 years. The Chinese government saw Liu as a dissident writer. But more than 4,000 miles away in Oslo, Norway, Liu was being commemorated. The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2010 to Liu Xiaobo for his long and non-violent struggle for fundamental rights in China. In June 2017, Chinese authorities revealed that Liu had been diagnosed with terminal liver cancer, and just a few weeks later, on July 13th, Liu passed away at the age of 61. He became the second Nobel Peace Prize winner to die while in prison. There had been pleas for Liu to leave China to seek medical care, but Beijing rejected them, saying that Liu was too ill to travel, and after his death. Beijing refuted criticisms over its treatment of Liu. Liu Xiaobo was a criminal serving his sentence according to the law. Whether he could go to a foreign country for treatment was not only a legal matter but also a medical one. It is fair to say that China has given Liu its best treatment. Foreign doctors who joined the medical team have also given positive comment on our efforts. But it seems like even after Liu had passed away, the Chinese government still saw him as a threat. While his death made headlines globally, coverage on mainland China was muted, with the exception of a few brief reports in English. Any searches of his name brought no results. Posts on social media about his death were removed. One Weibo user had written, "Even R.I.P. is being deleted." For me, what the media pays attention to is often the big names. And incidents that flow to the surface. That's the anonymous writer in Hong Kong again, voiced by my mom. I think voices are being shut off often in subtle way. Yan Nanke, a mainland Chinese writer, has mentioned in his book *Silence and Rest* how the PRC successfully uses its open door policy to create a semi-free cultural environment to seduce intellectuals and writers to voluntarily. Join a national campaign of selective memory. This would be a real threat to the local literature if voices are being silenced in an invisible way, or even before they appear. In 2013, Yan Nianke wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. He recalled a conversation he had had with a Swedish professor who was teaching at Hong Kong City University. The Swedish professor asked her mainland Chinese students about what they knew about the Tiananmen Square incident. They knew nothing. Here's what Yan wrote: "I used to assume history and memory would always triumph over temporary aberrations and return to their rightful place. It now appears the opposite is true. In today's China, amnesia trumps memory. Lies are surpassing the truth. Fabrications have become the logical link to fill historical gaps. While the whole world still vividly remembers the tragic end of the June Fourth student movement in 1989, the painful memory is lost in the country where the bloodshed took place, in the midst of cheers for China's economic growth and increased influence. China now is more prosperous and is stronger than it was 30 years ago. 
I believe China should also be mature enough to reflect on and remember its past. Yan concludes his essay with this: "I believe a truly great people are people who have the courage to remember their own past, and a truly great nation is a nation that has the courage to record its own history." Two years ago, in 2020, the International Human Rights Organization (Human Rights Watch) released their annual report with a focus on China. Within China, President Xi Jinping is overseeing the most pervasive and brutal oppression in decades. That's Kenneth Roth, the executive director of Human Rights Watch. Dissidents are silenced. Civic groups are shut down. Independent journalism is no more. Online conversation is curtailed. The small steps that had been taken toward the rule of law are now clearly replaced by the Communist Party's traditional rule by law. Hong Kong's limited freedoms are severely challenged, and as a result, it has constructed an Orwellian high-tech surveillance system and a sophisticated system of internet censorship to try to monitor and suppress any public criticism. It's the spring of 1947, just after World War II had ended, and a British writer was concerned about one thing in particular: that the democratic systems in the West would not last. He worried, what if someone like a Stalin or a Hitler suddenly seized power? What would happen if civil rights were taken away? Would the citizens have enough courage to stop them from disappearing altogether? As these questions continued to simmer in the man's mind, he decided to do what he did best. Right, but it was a desperate race against time because the writer himself was suffering from tuberculosis, and back in 1947, there was no cure for tuberculosis. Perhaps the writer was drawing from his own personal experience when he was describing his protagonist during a torture scene. The barrel of the ribs was as narrow as that of a skeleton. The legs had shrunk so that the knees were thicker than the thighs. The curvature of the spine was astonishing. As he was nearing the end of his life, the writer was also grappling with the demons of his imagination. As he wrote of a haunting dystopia where characters lived under fears of war, government surveillance, and political oppression of free speech, and where records of history are altered or erased, he wrote. Every record has been destroyed or falsified. Every book rewritten. Every picture has been repainted. Every statue and street building has been renamed. Every date has been altered. History has stopped. These words would later be published in 1949 as part of the writer's final book, whose name was Eric Blair, but many of us know him by his pen name, George Orwell. George Orwell's 1984 remains relevant and influential around the world. Many of his neologisms are commonly referred to, including Big Brother, Double Think, Thought Crime, and that two plus two equals five. In Hong Kong, many have found parallels between the city and the dystopian state of Oceania in Orwell's 1984. Back in January 2016, in the midst of the Causeway Bay bookstore incident, a Hong Kong barrister named Scarlett Wan wrote an essay for the Hong Kong Free Press. She wrote, "If the basic law can be ignored and evaded, how far off is any one of us from being coerced into voluntary cooperation? After all, in the mind of the Almighty Party, freedom is slavery, and Hong Kongers must, as all subjects do, not only obey but also learn to love the party." 
And a month later, in February 2016, a Hong Kong poet named Wa Wa wrote an essay about the fishbowl revolution in Wonggol. She wrote, "Before 1997, we learned that two plus two equals four. Now Hong Kong has been given 50 years to learn another logic. Two plus two equals anything. Some of us are already learning the new logic. Some resist." In Karen's memoir, *The Impossible City*, she writes, "These documentations are all acts of resistance, of remembrance. Someday, when they tell us otherwise, we will revisit these accounts that challenge what they want us to believe. We will know what we cannot unknow." We are witnessing certain instances where we knew that was not what happened. You know, like with CUHK. In 2019, we know what happened, and then we see people blatantly come out and say, "Oh wait, that's you know, this is my version of the narrative, and this is actually what happened." And that's extremely scary when what is going to be officially and publicly in the archives, you know, contradict really everyone's collective memory of what had happened. And in these circumstances, I do think it is extremely important to have written records for even yourself, you know, journal or something, to tell people we were not crazy. We collectively remembered what had happened. Don't tell me this is not <laughs> the case. So, in that circumstance, I think writing is also an act of resistance because it's telling the state. We have our own memory of the events, and so because of that, I think it is something that lends it a nature of being almost an act of protest. I'm interested. What what kind of subjects are you interested in writing about now? I lived for many years in Beijing, and I'm sort of thinking, been thinking back to sort of, a bit, I guess, nostalgia for that era of Beijing in the late 1990s and, and early 2000s. And I've been working on some some fiction、um, set in Beijing in that era, so just something you know, kind of completely different. So yeah, that's that's what I've been spending time on at the moment. Do you think writing fiction is per se like safer than writing nonfiction? Um, I think. So, to the extent that you know, one can always argue, well, this is this is just fiction. This is this is made up. But I don't. I mean, I don't think necessarily that the authorities would see it that way. If the authorities sort of felt there was some kind of purpose or, or some message behind fiction, I don't think that would necessarily mean that you you would be automatically be safe just because it's fiction. So, to a certain extent, yes, but not. not I wouldn't give absolute sort of protection. I wouldn't think. I also wanted to ask the anonymous writer whether she would avoid writing about certain topics. After all, books on the June Fourth incident have been removed from Hong Kong's public libraries, and this writer has written about that incident before. I do not want to avoid writing about topics that appear to be sensitive, because that's the beginning of self-censorship, which is fatal for a writer. But I think I will consider more carefully where and when my words should be published in the future. Karen's book, *The Impossible City*, ends with an anecdote. It's the last day of 2020, six months since the national security law was implemented. A large crowd has gathered on the promenade in Xinzhou with a clear view of Victoria Harbour. 
And just as the New Year countdown begins, the numbers are replaced with a familiar slogan. I remember just watching it on the news. Maybe I was in bed or something, and just scrolling through Instagram, and I was like, "Oh, like there people are there. People are still there." And that just sort of showed to me that the narrative is that okay, NSL is here, Hong Kong is dead, right? Like <laughs> that's that that was the prevailing narrative of a lot of opinion pieces at the time. The pace with which People left. Newspapers folded. It was all very startling, but at the same time, you know that proved to me that there were always going to be these pockets of people. Maybe carry a little bit of that past decade of going out to protest regularly. That those people are still going to be around, and I just wanted to pay tribute to that. I think because even now. I'm actually. I'm not sure that's going to still ever happen, but for me, it was like a good encapsulation of the people who are still trying. And I always want to be a little bit hopeful. Hong Kong authors now need to grapple with self-censorship and think twice before they publish something locally. But what about prospective writers, the ones who want to pursue a career in writing? Has the national security law affected them? The anonymous writer also teaches creative writing, so I asked her what she's been observing from her students. I can feel that students now are more engaged with writing topics related to social issues in recent years. For example, the dilemma of living or staying in Hong Kong after dramatic social and political changes, the everyday life of different communities in Hong Kong, and the traumatic experience of seeing death and imprisonment. They are also interested in exploring different literary forms, including political allegory, creative nonfictions, and lyrical essays. I feel very encouraged to see students' passion in pursuing these topics. The NSL is a threat, but what hope do we have if our younger generation doesn't care about what's happening here? The anonymous writer is unsure of whether she'll stay or leave Hong Kong in the future. But for now, she chooses the former. I would like to stay as long as I can to witness what is happening here, and also to be with my fellow Hong Kongers. What we experienced in the past few years is no doubt very sad, but it is also very valuable. On one hand, I can feel people are not defeated, and there is so much energy here, still fighting to survive. On the other hand. Hong Kong has been such a wealthy and peaceful place for a long time. We have been, in fact, too lucky. What we are experiencing is part of human history, and in some way will help us better understand people in other places and their suffering. Because of the ongoing crackdowns on freedom of speech and expression, the anonymous writer had requested to hide her identity and only wanted to exchange correspondence through email. She wasn't sure if she'd be targeted for breaking the national security law. That being said, she has been witnessing a new phenomenon. While quite a number of writers, editors, and cultural workers have left Hong Kong, I can already see Hong Kong literary communities and Hong Kong literary studies starting to grow in places like Taiwan and Singapore. 
some Hong Kongers have just started a Hong Kong film festival in London. Like one of the slogans of the anti-extradition law movement Bewater suggests, I believe that Hong Kong culture, including literature, will continue to exist in diverse form and continue its dialogue with other cultures. Unlike the Occupy movement in 2014, the 2019 movement didn't have a single leader or organizer. And unlike 2014, protesters in 2019 didn't limit themselves to mass sit-ins or occupying one district at a time. Instead, they divided and conquered. They would gather in large crowds quickly, and they would also disperse very quickly, like water flowing in and around a city, bringing to life what a Hong Kong resident, Bruce Lee, had once said. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. That's it for the second episode of Borrowed. Next up, in the final episode of this series, I'll be focusing on those selling books in Hong Kong and meeting the man who got me started on this whole project. 